Having car problems? Well, with Rhoda, getting them fixed is as easy as ordering takeout. They'll come pick up your car for free, do any repair or maintenance needed, and return it right to your driveway. They'll even give you a complimentary video inspection of your car so you can see what needs to be done. Perfect for those of us that maybe aren't so car savvy. Book your appointment online at roda.com. And lucky for you, CityCast listeners get a 20% discount on any service for up to $100 off. Just use the code CityCast20. Today on CityCast DC, it's election day. But in the district, this year, that's pretty boring. So we're looking ahead to a 2024 race that's already getting pretty heated for the shadow senator role. City Paper's Alex Coma explains what the job is, why Senator Michael D. Brown is in the hot seat, and who is gearing up to challenge him next year. Today's Tuesday, November 7th. I'm Bridget Todd, and here's what DC is talking about. Alex, D.C. is probably going to have kind of a spicy election next year for Shadow Senator. That's because right now, one of our Shadow Senators is this guy, Michael D. Brown. And people seem, I don't know, kind of frustrated by him at the moment. Why is that? Yeah, well, you know, he has always been sort of a colorful character (laughs) in D.C. politics. And so he, you know, has always had his fair share of uh, detractors. But, um, you know, it has especially, um, you know, sort of rankled what I would call, you know, D.C.'s more progressive community, given the way that Michael D. Brown behaved during the fight over the uh, revisions to the criminal code earlier this year. This was the fight happening, you know, between the city council the mayor and Congress over, you know, revisions that the council wanted to pass to its criminal laws that the mayor didn't think was a very good idea and Congress ultimately stepped in to overturn. That's kind of unprecedented in the recent history of, you know, D.C.'s relationship with its federal overseers. And Michael D. Brown is theoretically a, a, an advocate for D.C.'s autonomy and his role as shadow senator. And yet here he was sort of implicitly cheering um, Congress on as he was referring to council as petulant children and comparing them to drunk teenagers for their decision to pass these criminal code revisions. And uh, yeah, that didn't go over terribly well in in many quarters. I can imagine not. Yeah, colorful is one word to describe that. You know, it's important context to know that uh, he's been doing this for a very long time. Um, He's been in office for several terms now. He is commonly referred to um, in D.C. politics circles as White Mike uh, to differentiate (laughs) the fact that there is, in fact, another Michael Brown um, in D.C. politics, former at-large council member um, who later had to resign due to bribery charges. Um, so it's there's a lot of colorful stuff happening here, is what I'll say. For folks who might not get that reference, White Mike is a character on that, that old sitcom on the WB, the Marlin Brothers show. I love that that vernacular is part of this conversation to represent like, oh, this is the other Mike. Um, so Shadow Senator is part of a broader shadow delegation, right? How many people are on it? What are they meant to do? And what is this shadow government for folks who are not familiar? 
Yeah, the, you know, the idea is that if D.C. wants to become a state someday, which pretty much everyone in D.C. politics agrees um, it should, then uh, it might as well start acting like a state. So, you know, uh, back in the 90s, as these discussions were becoming, you know, more serious, the district decided to create two shadow senators, just as D.C. would have if there were a state, and a shadow uh, representative, just as it would have if it were any other state with a small population, um, you know, relative to the other states. So the whole idea is that, you know, D.C. should be acting as if. And, you know, these people have no, you know, they can't go to the floor of Congress and cast a vote, um, but they can, you know, advocate um, on uh, D.C.'s behalf for statehood, with the idea being that they can be, you know, another access point, a liaison between Congress, um, who would be deciding on a statehood uh, decision and the White House and the district government and advocating for the district government, um, you know, where council members and the mayor have, you know, myriad other responsibilities. The idea is the shadow delegation should be pushing on one issue and one issue only, and that is D.C. autonomy and, and ultimately statehood. Are folks in the shadow government paid? It's a complicated, you know, situation um, where they get some funding to do some things. But, you know, this is fundamentally a, a volunteer, mm. you know, donating your time kind of uh, situation. Um, I got to say, you know, the whole idea of putting responsibility on people, but, you know, not really, you know, recuperating them for their time is, you know, it, making all of this kind of more complicated. Yeah, I can imagine. How are these roles different than the role that someone like Eleanor Holmes Norton plays in our kind of weird, local, federal, hybrid, sometimes feels like it's not really real government. I know, it, it is all sort of maddening. Um, and, and one of many reasons it would be nice if, if the district were simply a state. Basically, Eleanor Holmes Norton is technically considered a delegate. Um, you know, she has the power to, for instance, introduce legislation. Um, she can um, cast limited, um, you know, votes on, on committee proceedings. You know, she can sit on committees. It is perhaps like the bare minimum um, that Congress could give. But it is more than the shadow delegation gets to do, which is, uh, basically try and use their megaphone and that's kind of it. Okay, so comparatively, the shadow delegation, they have a lot less power and they don't get paid. So actually kind of doesn't sound like a sweet gig at all. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's all about how you use it. And, and that is sort of the conversation that will, you know, be happening in, in 2024, um, you know, as we have in the election for the seat that Michael D. Brown is, is currently in. The question is, you know, what is this role? Um, you know, a lot of people will tell you, you know, they want to use it as a megaphone and they want to drive attention to statehood. But I mean, you know, you got to look at the politics, too. This is a way to get your name out there in front of voters. Shadow senators have uh, and representatives have had ambitions uh, for higher office. Some haven't, um, you know, but but some certainly have, um, including uh, Michael D. Brown, who's run for council uh, several times um, unsuccessfully. So it's, you know, it's it definitely uh, comes with its own benefits. You get to say that you're a senator, uh, even if you got to add that shadow qualifier. <laughs> when was the last time you went to the theater? Well, we have a new show for you to check out. The Gala Theater in Columbia Heights is showing the political musical comedy Museum in the Closet, Avida's Return which follows Argentine icon Eva Perón to the afterlife as her preserved corpse ignites political scandals, clandestine affairs, and mysterious murders. The show is full of samba, reggae, and tango that will have you tapping your feet nonstop. The show is in Spanish with English surtitles and will run from May 9th through June 9th. 
Get your tickets now at galatheater.org or call 202-234-7174. So speaking of Michael D. Brown, he's been in this role for more than 15 years. How does he feel about this job? I spoke to him a, a couple months ago now, and he is sort of on the fence, I think, about whether he wants to keep doing it. Um, if he were to run for another term, he would be in his late 70s. Um, and as you say, you know, he's been doing this for some time. Um, so he he certainly still has very strong feelings about all of this, even in the, the face of the criticism that he's received. Um, he's not backing down. I mean, basically, you know, the way he sees it is he came out vindicated out of this whole discussion because Congress Congress ultimately ended up overturning D.C.'s criminal code. And so the way he sees it is he was right to chastise city council. You know, so on the one hand, he seems conflicted about, you know, wanting to keep doing it. But on the other hand, he's not really talking like a guy who's, you know, not done being involved in the political debate just yet. So, So we'll have to see. You know, you mentioned his relationship with council. How do you think he feels about D.C. council? (laughs) <laughs> well, he has uh, not been shy about um, his criticisms. I-, I can tell you that, you know, based on my conversations with people around the Wilson building, that there is not a lot of love lost there, um, whether it is the council or the mayor. There was a recent uh, meeting of D.C.'s Statehood Commission, um, which is a sort of loosely organized body, um, you know, that, uh, you know, is a technically an arm of the D.C. government, you know, meant to be doing some of this statehood advocacy, you know, within the mayoral in- administration that they invited uh, Michael D. Brown and the rest of the shadow delegation to speak at. And it basically led to the mayor storming out over his persistent complaints that the office isn't funded enough. So, you know, it's not a great relationship going either way. You know, the way he sees it is the council has been intransigent in the face of rising, you know, violence in the city and has, you know, refused to take action. And the way they see it about him is that he should stay out of their business and focus on statehood advocacy and not put his nose into policy, which is, you know, kind of their domain. Has Brown faced serious challenges in past elections or have people been pretty satisfied with them up until now? Yeah, well, you know, part of the reason I think you're seeing some momentum, you know, other candidates getting in this race right now is because in 2018, the last time he was on uh, the ballot, um, you know, he did get a pretty serious challenger. Um, You know, many progressive groups in the city sort of coalesced behind Andrea Thomas, who has been a longtime statehood advocate, and, and she came within just a few points of beating him. And, you know, I think that sort of showed people that he's not unbeatable because for many years, people sort of broadly assumed that that he was simply because of, and, you know, he insists up and down that this isn't true when you talk to him, but I think there is no denying the fact that many people just simply don't know the difference between the various Michael Browns. <laughs> it, it is a confusing situation. And so I think he has frequently benefited from people assuming that he is Michael A. Brown, uh, a politician who remains popular um, in some communities, particularly black communities um, east of the Anacostia River. Um, and they just sort of, you know, they, they see Michael Brown on the ballot. And, you know, it's reasonable to not look at the middle initial of the person you're voting for. And I think that has consistently buoyed him 
as it surely would in any, you know, re-election effort in, in 2024. We kind of have to see. Well, adding to that confusion is your reporting that says Brown says that he might not even run again. So who is running? At this point, you know, there are several candidates in the race, um, but probably the two most prominent ones, just based on their past experience in statehood advocacy and local politics, are Wendy Hamilton. Um, she was the, the first person, uh, you know, who has experience in, in local politics to announce. She previously ran against um, Eleanor Holmes Norton back in uh, 2022 and has been, um, she's from Ward 8 um, and serves as an advisory neighborhood commissioner there and, um, you know, basically has been active in a lot of statehood, um, you know, advocacy um, around the criminal code revision. That includes the Hands Off DC Coalition, which is a group of progressive uh, organizations trying to push back against congressional interference. And she you know, sort of brings, I think, a, a decent uh, amount of name recognition from some of that experience um, into all of this. Um, but the uh, candidate who uh, more recently declared, Ankit Jain, also has a decent amount of, of that um, to offer as well. A longtime attorney um, who up until recently worked at the Sierra Club and, you know, has been active um, both uh, in his local uh, Democratic organization and in some of the same progressive groups that Wendy Hamilton has been in. You know, it, it sort of on paper kind of similar candidates to people who, you know, are telling similar stories about wanting to see the office reinvigorated and upset with Michael Brown's comments. And it will sort of be, you know, interesting to watch over the next few months to see, you know, does one of them really start to emerge as the, as the favorite among people who are, you know, the anti-Michael Brown vote? And then, of course, the key question of, you know, does he run again? A, a divided field is going to benefit the incumbent. What should people know about our other shadow senator, Paul Strauss? Just like, uh, you know, Michael D. Brown, um, he's been doing this job um, for a very long time. Um, I believe he took office in 97 and is currently set to serve through uh, 2027. Um, so that tells you that he's got some experience here. He has been what I would describe as maybe a little bit more subtle uh, than someone like Michael D. Brown. Um, he, too, has aspirations for a higher office. I know he's run for council at least once um, and has been... You know, he's been involved in efforts over the years, like trying to get, you know, some more national attention um, to statehood that, you know, he's testified before Congress, I believe, um, and has been, you know, involved in Democratic primary politics, trying to get the various Democratic contenders to stress this issue. Because it, it's kind of a, a sad fact that, um, you know, even in, in an issue that may seem like common sense to us, you know, district residents, um, it, it still, um, you know, requires a little uh, uh, force and force forcefulness uh, to get national politicians, even Democrats, uh, to pay attention to it. And it's certainly something he's been involved in over the years. What does all this drama and confusion say about D.C.'s fight for home rule more generally? Like, what is going on here? Uh, nothing good. It's something that I've been reporting on a lot over the last few, you know, weeks and months, um, you know, both sort of spurred on by the, the controversy over the criminal code and, and then in the fallout over that. I mean, I, I think a lot of us who are in D.C. politics remember the enthusiasm that so many statehood advocates had coming out of Joe Biden's election. You know, Democrats had unified control of Congress for the first time in, in over a decade and even though it was narrow control, I think many people hoped that 
you know, they, they would give statehood some serious consideration. But ever since then, I mean, there is no action, um, you know, coming out of uh, Joe Biden's, you know, first two years um, in power, uh, largely because of some intransigent moderate senators that, you know, gave an opening for Republicans to take back the House in the midterms and, and has essentially, you know, really led to a, I think, a pretty severe degradation of, you know, autonomy and home rule ever since then, because you not only see Republicans leading this effort to step in and substitute their judgment for that of the duly elected uh, D.C. Council on the criminal code, but also just an unending string of hearings, you know, demagoguing about crime in the district and Republicans trying to, you know, score some easy political points by pointing at a Democratic run city like D.C. and saying, you know, look how bad things are over there, um, you know, for their national, you know, Fox News audience. Um, that's all been very bad um, for D.C., especially when you see, you know, our shadow senators uh, echoing some of those talking points. It's definitely led many people I speak to in the statehood movement to be a bit disheartened because now they're sort of left hoping that Joe Biden wins again and Democrats retake control of Congress um, in 2024. And we start all this talk about statehood over again. Alex, thank you so much for being here and helping us understand a sort of confusing situation about D.C. <laughs> well, it's my pleasure. That's all for today here on CityCast DC. If you enjoyed the show, tell your friend who can't stop talking about DC statehood. We'll be back tomorrow morning with even more news from around the city. Talk to you then.